What's up, everybody? I'm here with a very special guest. Who are you? What do you do? Uh, hey, good to be here. My name's Sean P. McCarthy. Um, I'm a podcast host, a co-host of Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. I was a stand-up comedian before the world imploded, uh, and then uh, now I'm just a Twitter shit poster. I didn't know that you used to do uh, stand-up. I actually, because I heard about you on the Tim Dillon show, and mm-hmm. he was talking about how you believe in a, in a maximum wage, which I like. So I was like, fuck yeah, I want to follow this guy, and I love the shit posting. Uh, Uh, When did you start doing comedy, and what's your podcast about? Uh, I started doing stand-up more than a decade ago, originally back in Seattle. And uh, originally, I moved out to New York City to to do stand-up. And uh, yeah, I was doing stand-up until COVID, and now I'm not. But um, the podcast, the basic idea is every week we profile a different billionaire, and we spend about an hour just kind of going through their biography and generally with kind of a negative perspective you know it's like we're the prosecution trying to make our case that this is a bad person which you know uh some people might say that's biased but i would argue most of what you will read in mainstream media will be sympathetic so we're giving you the other side of the story the the more negative one have you ever found that uh you you wound up having more empathy for a billionaire through one of these uh excursions where you go through their profile Ooh, sorry, the audio cut out. Uh-oh, it's all good, people. We'll come back. Sean's working on it. We got this. Talking about billionaires. That's what we do here. <laughs> um, so now I'm just going to fill for time while Sean figures things out. It's fine. This thing happens, people. You know, this is the kind of thing that I want to happen. The world's full of mistakes. Sometimes things don't go the way they will. You plan them. It's cool. It's all good. Sometimes you just got to roll with the punches. I'm getting a lot of punches right now. I'd love to jump off a cliff at this moment. Anything to kill myself. I'm just trying to make Sean laugh. It's not working. It's really not working. He's a comedian. All right, wait, can you hear me now? Yes! Sorry, yeah, All right, I'm that. <laughs> All right, I'm sorry about that. I'll just use my computer. Okay. No, it's cool, man. I'm sorry I'm not funny, but yes, as you were saying. Um, regarding... Um, Regarding any billionaires I might have had sympathy for after doing the episode, uh, I would say you might uh, know Notch, the guy who created Minecraft, is a billionaire. And, I mean, I don't really have sympathy for the guy himself, but I think it's an interesting story of how getting that much money really destroys you as a person. I mean, like, it's impossible to just have that much money and maintain your regular relationships. Or, you know, Notch was just like a talented programmer who built the basics of the game Minecraft himself. And then he brought some of his other, you know, programmer friends on board and they improved it and made it into a real game. And then he kind of sold them out and sold the whole company to Microsoft. And, you know, kind of now he's just alone in this world and you see him complaining on Twitter like, oh, I don't really have any friends anymore. Or, you know, the people are uh, mad at me because I sold the company to Microsoft. And it's just kind of like you reach a level where it's impossible to have connection with other people. That's, that's what a lot of money does. So I am sympathetic because it's just like this guy who probably would have been just like a normal dude gets way too much money and then becomes kind of a, a, a very lonely and bitter Twitter psychopath. Right. And it's, it's hard. Um, There's studies that show that the more money you have, the less empathy that you have, uh, uh, in Civilized for Death by Chris Ryan. It's a really good book. He talks about this one study where they looked at the people that would stop for pedestrians and almost always people in like really nice cars would never stop for pedestrians. But it would always be the, um, you know, like the Nissans that would stop. And uh, wealthy people give a much less percentage of their wealth to charity than just to, re- you know, regular people. And you know, do you think it's true that money corrupts and is, is it possible to even avoid that corruption? I think it's absolutely true. I mean, you know, I'll give you another example. Like I've heard about that study regarding the fancy cars and stopping for pedestrians. I think that's absolutely true. When I worked at a, a grocery store, which I was doing on and off for several years, different grocery stores, but in Manhattan, most of the people who work in the grocery stores, uh, they usually live in the Bronx. They commute down from the Bronx. It's a lot of, um, people from the Dominican Republic, a lot of Puerto Ricans, 
uh, African Americans, of course, and you know some white dudes. But uh, but what I noticed is that my coworkers, you know, they're making just above minimum wage in the most expensive city on earth, but they're the most generous people in terms of sharing what little they have with anybody. You know, like you go out with them, they offer to pay for your meal always. You know, like my coworkers would make lunch and just give it to give it out to other people in the office, you know. And of course you'll you'll run into like nice people at every level of income, but I guess it is most striking how generous people are when they have little, you know, like compared to the people who are like the richest on earth and they'll skim you on a tip nine times out of 10, you know? Right. Um, but yeah, just regarding like, is it possible? I think in a more fair, just world, I think like, you know, part of what, what leads me to advocacy for redistribution is, uh, everybody's mental sanity. I just don't think like living in a city like New York, you see homeless people all over the street, right next to like the most uh, opulent wealth you can imagine. And I think people would be uh, mentally healthier if they didn't see somebody sitting out in the street and think, or you see somebody hungry and think, this is just normal. This is just how the world's supposed to be. No, you if if you knew that you lived in a country that took care and made sure everybody had a meal and a house and healthcare, you know, and a job, like, I think you would, I think everybody collectively would be happier and would be more decent to each other and capable of leading a more, you know, fulfilling life. Right, exactly. And uh, I, I agree with you. I think we definitely need redistribution. And it's, uh, it's like, to a certain point, I do think it's amoral to be hoarding wealth. I think you should be able to you know, accrue some kind of, um, you should be able to live the life you want, but not like hoard so much that other people are literally dying because you're, you're hoarding so much. So how would you, let's say you were a politician, right? How would you go about creating that redistribution without doing it too fast? Because that's the problem with, uh, I find with a lot of, and I believe in Marxist theory to an extent, but with a lot of, um, these, communist revolutions, they happen too fast, right? We saw it in, uh, you know, we saw it with Pol Pot in Russia. It happened with, um, you know, Che Guevara. When, when, when you don't have time to ruminate on the changing of society, and this is a Confucian idea, uh, you, you can't possibly, like, understand how it's going to go sour every time. So what, what's a good way to build towards a better United States? Yeah, well, in terms of the United States, the history is there. In 1954, Franklin Delano Roosevelt gives a speech about the uh, the four freedoms or the economic freedoms. Um, and the basic idea, as he says in this speech, is that every American should have an economic bill of rights. And you can pick that up today. It's just as relevant today where every American has the right to a decent paying job. Every American has the right to housing. Every American has the right to food. Every American has the right to a good education. You know, so... I mean, in terms of where we go from here, I think you just have to do some sort of social democratic reform. And then in tandem with that, I believe you have to empower unions. Because, I mean, you are right. Where, where we're headed right now, you could definitely get a revolution from either the right or the left, mm -hmm. uh, in my opinion, probably from the right. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think the, I believe in democracy. So I think the best way to determine what sort of system we adopt going forward is to empower working people through unions. And you have a voice and representation in a union in your workplace, and you have a vote there. And these, uh, my idea is ideally every workplace um, would have a union. And then once there are unions in all the workplaces, then if you know, you move towards like actual socialism, nationalization of the means of production, that's something that would be determined democratically through union workplaces. And my personal view is, my personal view is I just want to see social democracy in the United States within my lifetime. And um, anything beyond that, uh, I haven't really thought about. I'll, I will, I will be so blessed just to see the first part, you know. Right, exactly. I mean, if we look too far, it's kind of like chaos theory. The farther we look ahead, the less likely we are to be able to predict that type of thing.
But I mean, we're seeing in the rest of the world where these social democracies are around. I mean, you still have markets, things are still being made and things are working out very well. But um, there's a there's a reluctance in this country to go towards like a more socialist state and all that has to do with McCarthyism. Um, what things on the on the right are people doing and, and some people in the neoliberal left to demonize uh, socialist democracies and why are they doing it? Well, I mean, you know, obviously if Trump and uh, all these mainstream Republicans talking about how Bernie and AOC are, are going to implement socialism and all that. And I, I don't know how effective it actually is. I think it's kind of an ancient boogeyman at this point. I think what's more harmful to socialism is um, the association with kind of bored rich kids who want to tear everything down and don't really understand the world. Um, and I think, you know, and I think kind of the association that there's a dislike for this country, a desire to destroy this country among people who identify as socialists. And I'm not saying all of them have that. I just think this is kind of the, the associations that that's painted. And, you know, the easiest way of illustrating this is you look at Bernie Sanders 2016 versus Bernie Sanders 2020. Well, in 2016, he runs against Hillary Clinton in the Democratic primary. He cleans up among um, white voters with no college degree. And then in 2020, he gets beaten badly, you know, just as badly as he beat Hillary by Joe Biden among white voters with no college degree. And, you know, I, and I'm sure it's a similar story with uh, other racial groups that just haven't looked at it. And it's just, you know, the U.S. is still a majority white country, but right. I, which is, uh, but my point with all that is when you talk about either socialism or social democracy or, you know, whatever you want to uh, call it, it's a movement that has to primarily benefit right now workers without college degrees. Uh, workers without college degrees are still 68% of the United States. Um, and if you look at wage trends, like I looked at uh, um, uh, Department of Labor statistics regarding real wages going back to uh, 1978, uh, if you look at that, you'll see a 12 to 24% decrease in real wages for workers without college degrees from 1978 to, I believe, 2018 or 2016. I can get the stats if anyone's curious about that. But the point is, globalization and the neoliberal turn that happens in the late 70s has impacted everybody. But the people who are most negatively impacted are the workers trying to survive without college degrees. So if your project is to remake the world order, these are the most discontented people, the most discontented voters, you have to appeal to them. You have to have their support. You have to base your entire political project on what you need and what you believe comes first. And so instead, what we've kind of seen on the left is um, this idea that what college graduates believe and uh, what they want kind of comes first. And unfortunately, I think that has alienated a lot of uh, people without college degrees, and a lot of them either become dejected or some of them go towards the right. Um, and now that Bernie's gone, I'm not, I'm not sure what the, the next left looks like, because I think, you know, politicians like AOC more represent this kind of college degree, yeah. morally mobile, professional middle class strata of the left that's, that's alienating to um, what, what, in my opinion, is the main segment of the working class that has to be won over. Right. I, I, um, in AOC, I like a lot of the things she actually does, so that's important, but she also seems like very, comes off as very fake to me. Um, she had that video where she talked about which vegetables are racist, and she like put on a, I really sincerely feel like she put on a Jewish accent in that video she made where she was talking about being Jewish, and that's the type of thing. It's like a hypocrisy, right? Like Bernie, I, I, you can see he's a sincere person, but like AOC, she kind of does things that she would call out the right for. And it's, it, it really makes you think like, hey, you're, you're trying to fight for the people, but you're still, you're still kind of waging this divide between people's gaps. But, you know, you know, the French have a saying, the middles, the extremes meet in the middle. You know, if we could all just kind of be unified on some ideas of moving forward, like you said, giving union rights, we, we could do this thing. But we're kind of, I, I don't know, do you think we're, I mean, we obviously are how can we stop being over politicized and like i'll get deeper into what i what i mean because i just read white fragility so i could talk to yes. you about it as well oh great right and i just think people look there's a problem in academia but also you know like 
you and I and a lot of people, we're kind of in this microcosm that other people don't care about. Like most people don't care about like the woke versus anti-woke shit. So like, are, are we becoming over-politicized in some areas or are we under-politicized? What do you, what's your read? I think, I mean, yeah, this kind of like woke versus anti-woke divide is uh, limited to the internet. But at the same time, you know, a lot of the things that will get you cast out as a racist or a misogynist will, um, you know, polite or let's say mainstream society would just think that's insane. Like, you know, I always give the example of Angela Nagel, who I think is a very smart uh, leftist writer who wrote an article about the left case against open borders, which again, whether or not you believe in open borders, uh, the vast majority of people in the United States do not believe in open borders by every single poll, you know, 70, 80, 90%. And so this is like a mainstream position. And the point is you should be able to have a big enough coalition, especially the left, the entire idea is to overwhelm the barriers to structural change by having a coalition that gets 60 or 70% approval ratings. You should be able to debate, debate and discuss respectfully these mainstream ideas without what happened to Angela Nagel, which was a torrent of people calling her a Nazi and a Strausserite and all these other obscure terms. So the, the point is, you know, whether or not these debates are kind of obscure and internal, if you chase people who have mainstream ideas out of your circle or uh, your coalition and really just kind of uh, paint them with the worst I mean, the worst political insult you can think of, which is, of course, to call somebody a Nazi, then you're, you're just going to have a um, fundamentally isolated political coalition that is fringe and doesn't represent anybody. And, you know, that's what we've seen in the left. And just regarding, like, politicization in general, I would say, yeah, the only way, the thing is, I think there's a, an effort both by, you know, conservative and liberal people, some well-meaning, some not at all, to convince people of the idea that the problems in this country are caused by your neighbor. You know, your neighbor voted for Trump. Your neighbor is an irredeemable piece of shit because he voted for Trump. He caused the problems in this country. And, you know, of course, vice versa and all that. And the reality is the problems of this country are not caused by your neighbor. They're caused by a small group of capital holders. So any sort of coalition capable of, of overcoming that is going to have a lot of contradictions because, again, 60 to 70 percent of the country. And this is in a country where, you know, the CIA has a 60 percent approval rating. And, you know, people, a lot of people love the police, you know. So you're going to have these coalitions where you have to say, you know what, it's OK. Like, I don't like the police. You like the police. But we have a bigger issue here. We can solve, you know, our disagreements later regarding uh flag burning or whatever else tertiary issue the, the primary thing is redistribution so that's why I like medicare for all like i like the idea of essentially a coalition that's just a huge tent and picks three issues and then everything else is we'll figure it out later but these three issues say you know medicare for all or break up the big banks or whatever else this is like, we will not be divided on this. Everything else, everybody who agrees with this principle, I don't care what else you think. If you agree with this principle, you're welcome in our coalition and we will show you, you know, tolerance and respect and our other disagreements will be figured out later. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of this is people, people, and I've said this on a few episodes of my podcast, for the three listeners out there, um, We've heard it already. You know, people are afraid of balance. People are afraid to be wrong and people are afraid to kind of have that, you know, let's let's pick these things that we can focus on. And I um is it true that you believe like the CIA is kind of propagating that? That is they're doing it on purpose? I mean, you did mention the CEA. They're trying to divide us so we can't have those those things we can focus on together. Well, I go back and forth to uh, right. really, really go off the deep end for your listeners uh, and discredit myself. Um, I think it's interesting where I just observe a lot of things on the left today that I'm like, okay, so say you were a CIA agent sitting down going, how do I sabotage the left? Um, well, the results are about the same. So that doesn't mean that necessarily the CIA sabotaged the, the left, but I wouldn't discount the possibility where, you know, anybody can look up the, uh, the OSS uh, organizational sabotage manual they made for World War II. They basically said, you know, if you're in an organization and you're trying to um, delay it, 
make people afraid to express any idea by, you know, making them always want to word everything perfectly, you know, always refer things back to committees, always have, you know, another layer kind of like delay and just like all these different things. And I think another thing that I do happen to notice is the last time the American university system was, let's say any sort of threat to the powers that be was the Vietnam war. There were all these campus occupations um, at Harvard, uh, Bill Gates was, he, he learned how to program on a computer that was donated by the U.S. military, but because it was the Vietnam War, they had to uh, back the truck up at like 4 a.m. and dump the computer off because the Harvard students would throw rocks or try to destroy any army tank that, that drove onto the Harvard campus during the Vietnam War. It's not true today. Uh, so you've seen, I guess, with all these kind of uh, let's say modern academic tendencies of uh, critical race theory, intersectionality, uh, privilege, rhetoric, uh, all this kind of stuff. You've seen an interesting thing where they claim to be more radical, but the university system has become really lockstep with both corporate America and the military industrial complex and all that. So they've actually been completely pacified. And really what they have instead is completely erased class where you get a bunch of narcissistic white kids who go to college and they think, oh, white privilege is just my life. Every single white person in this country had my life. It's like, no, there's tens of millions of white people in desperate poverty. Your life is not a universal experience. And again, you know, uh, white privilege, you, you see a lot of that where like, for another example, the millionaire Chelsea Handler makes a Netflix documentary about white privilege. Well, why is she doing that? Well, part of that is to, propagate this nonsense idea that if you're a middle-class white person, you and Chelsea Handler have the same white privilege. No, not at all. She lives a completely different life that is utterly alien to, to anything you would experience whatsoever. And this talk of privilege or uh, white privilege, it's most of the time just a way of erasing class and, and fomenting these divisions. So long and short, if I were a CIA agent, I would certainly promote these tendencies that tend to divide any sort of class-focused coalition. Doesn't mean they did it, but I do want to stick around and see if uh, the documents come out within my lifetime proving they did. Right, we'll see, who knows? Maybe it'll be like the Gulf of Tonkin and it'll take like 40, 50 years. Um, so I, I like that you, know, you brought up the white privilege thing and I just read White Fragility two days. I was like, I gotta talk to Sean about this. Um, I read it because I like to read things that maybe I wouldn't agree with, really. Um, I, you know, I like the, uh, I don't, I don't like to stick to one, like, ideology, and I, I did learn some things from it, but the book is, like, really, honestly, like, it's, it's bad, really, and the, and, and the idea that um, she, and I want to say this because the people that are in my circle might listen to this, uh, it, like, in my read of it, it actually promotes more white supremacy than it tries to hide and that it's she's saying all these terrible things like about black people that honestly like uh, i used to be racist when i was younger but like i i wouldn't think like in like in a million years now right like I, did you read the book at all no but i am curious to to hear the newest cia uh, patch update for the uh, the psyop <laughs> white fragility is a cia psyop i like it right right um but you know I, where i'm going with this is it it goes to like a power grid and that there's been a domestication of critical theory and that it used to just be like this Marxist thing where you could address a superstructure and say, hey, this is why people are oppressed. It, it's a systematic thing. And right now we keep talking about things like, and not that they're not problems, but we want to focus on race. We want to focus on um, gender, all these other things. And yes, they do exist, but the way to fix those is not by addressing it in interpersonal matters and assuming things on a on a more broad basis as white fragility does saying all everyone's racist all the time. And if you want to fix it, you can't fix it. It's by addressing the initial structure that causes this thing. Um, and that, that's why I do think there might be like her and her issue with me uh, that strikes me with her. Um, what's her name? Robin D'Angelo is that she makes money off of this type of thing, you know, and she's, she's participating in this capitalist system that's actually perpetuating the type of systematic racism she says that she's against. There's a hypocrisy to a certain kind of a liberalism. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, you know, Robin D'Angelo was a uh, 
corporate consultant. You know, she's um, uh, done work for diversity training for the Trump administration. She's done work for uh, uh, the journalist Lee Fong found that she was doing uh, diversity consulting for a law firm that uh, is kind of notorious for representing corporate clients who um, damage the environment, damage workers, damage people. Um, you know, so it, it is something where kind of the, I mean, it's depressing, but so far the main result of uh, this really grassroots protest movement, which I, I think is very encouraging and should be supported, but the, the main result has been like people like Robin D'Angelo sold a bunch of books and booked a bunch of corporate gigs. And like, look, the reality here is when we talk about things like, you know, racism and sexism, you can't brainwash people and fix these things. The, and even if you could, that's not going to, it's not what the issue is. The issue is material deprivation. So, you know, for example, black Americans have been uh, materially deprived because of government policies such as redlining and uh, of course, slavery, Jim Crow, all this stuff. So the way to redress that is of course, material redistribution. Uh, but there's this, this industry kind of focuses on interpersonal behaviors, you know, your, your personal relationships to people. Well, that's not gonna fix any of these material problems, but I guess more important is this stuff is very dangerous. I mean, like you were saying about kind of inflaming racial tensions for two reasons, which is, you know, one, it's come out that both Amazon and Microsoft, among others, kind of use this stuff to bust up unionization efforts to kind of get workers to spy on each other. And that's, you know, kind of my issue with, with so-called cancel culture is a lot of this stuff has kind of turned people into snitches for um, against each other. Because at the end of the day, you know, like say getting somebody fired, it's all going to be management. They're going to fire the people who are a threat or a problem to them. It's not your decision. If you go uh, snitch on somebody that management likes, they're not going to fire them. But if you go snitch on somebody that management had a problem with, then all right, yeah, sure. So you're doing management or capital's job for it. So this kind of like way of busting up solidarity and, you know, making people say you cannot have class solidarity across racial lines. I think that's a very poisonous element um, of this, this diversity stuff or this, let's say corporate diversity training stuff. Um, but I, I think the second element is, you know, right now with the coronavirus and we're economically in conditions approaching the great depression, you know, maybe people will lose unemployment insurance this month. Things could get really bad. And once you get a situation where there's scarcity, that is something where this kind of like stratification along racial lines could absolutely turn violent. It can get very bad if people, you know, if there's not enough money to go around, people are going to start looking for scapegoats or people are going to start, you know, forming the solidarity of, of last resort along, along racial lines. So, you know, I mean, the entire project of anti-racism has been for uh, its recorded history to emphasize that racially we're all the same. You know, there's not fundamental differences between people, but that is reversed very scarily under the uh, idea of anti-racism in recent years to, to kind of argue the other way that racial characteristics are fundamental and they have to be acknowledged at all times and your racial identity is, is unchanging and the most important thing about you and, you know, uh, white people have to behave this way and all this kind of stuff. And I think that's scary. I think reinforcing race is scary. Yeah, it absolutely is. And um, I, I've been reading, if anyone has read quotations from Chairman Mao, like Mao Zedong's quotations. And I don't want to just repeat a bunch of talking points people are saying on Twitter, but it really is almost the same kind of, same kind of ideas in that like, we always need this re-education. It's always gonna have to keep being in our heads. It's, it's always gonna be there that we have to do this, uh, this cultural revolution. And we're seeing these kind of struggle sessions in the virtual realm, like on Twitter. And um, it, you know, how how should we navigate this like to, the ability to have open dialogue i mean you and me are both on the left both at different levels but you know we're able to talk how, how are we going to be able to you know maneuver a, an actual dialogue with people on varying different sides without you know being uh 
being succumbed to these to these wild ideologies that want to cancel people for even having an opinion that like like Brett Weinstein had where he just asked why is science racist and he got like canceled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, actually, you know, on the Maoism thing, what I would say is I always hear fervent right wingers talking about cultural Marxism, which makes no sense. Marxism is a materialist philosophy. I think any Marxist is uh, what is now derisively called a class reductionist or a class firster, at least. But I think the idea of, let's say, cultural Maoism, that does kind of make sense to me, because uh, one thing uh, Mao said was all art is political. And you do see this today where the idea is if somebody's a musician or a comedian or, you know, just an, an artist, what if they're a creative per- a writer, creative journalist, creative person, if they're a creative person, all of their work is interpreted through a political lens. And I think the reality is that people can go home and put on a sitcom that maybe tells some problematic jokes or whatever, or even put on a sitcom that's made by a conservative, if, if such a thing is, is their taste, then they can still be fine people in their interpersonal lives. It, it, people have this idea that art brainwashes people. And especially, you know, since Jon Stewart, uh, who I think is very funny, obviously, but people have had this idea that the role of comedy is to brainwash people. So I think you kind of have this panic among cultural liberals where they see, you know, Donald Trump get elected and they think, okay, we have to totally purge the cultural space of any sort of deviation from cultural liberalism because that brainwashes people and makes them the bad people. And that's just not the case at all. And then like in terms of surviving this stuff, I don't really know. I I think what worries me is it's just become another battlefield in the culture war where uh, conservatives dance around and celebrate when they get somebody fired who they are think is quote unquote a liberal or on the left, leftists and liberals. They cry when their side gets fired, but they're happy to get the other side fired. And the only way to overcome that is a truce, which is why I am a fundamental believer that there should be a law passed, um, assuming you know unions are currently not strong enough to implement it. But I do believe there should be a law passed saying that it's illegal for your employer to fire you for things you post on the internet in your spare time or things you say or do on your spare time. It's not their business what you do when you're off the clock. And I think that's absolutely a a fundamental advancement in labor rights, but I think it would also clean up a bunch of these cultural issues. Because my problem is not like people dogpiling on Twitter. My problem is they dogpile and then it's like, hey, let's find out where this fucker works. Let's make his his or her management aware of what they're doing on the internet. And then it's like, oh, okay, great. So we're getting people kicked out of their apartment for their opinions now. You can't really have free expression or free dialogue when when you might, you know, lose your ability to buy groceries for, for exercising that. Right. Do you, but do you think, um, do you think dialogue can be dangerous? Do you think if someone's like on Stormfront all the time, dropping n-bombs left and right bada bing bada boom do you think what about that do you think if do you think you know if an employer sees that they go hey that doesn't that shouldn't represent our company we, we want to let you go do you think that would be fair well i mean on the first point i would say i'm a materialist i generally believe that any sort of fringe anti-social idea is only going to get um, let's say more than a, a critical mass of adherence, it's only going to become a problem for society if mainstream society has broken down and, and failed. The entire point of mainstream society is that if mainstream society is working out for most people in it, they're going to be fine with mainstream society. They're not going to go looking for fringe ideologies. Um, so, you know, that's the thing is there's always going to be this whatever Stormfront or 4chan or whatever bullshit you want to pick. It's just if you're actually providing people with a decent life, it's not going to matter. You know, it's it's just going to be noise that is ignored and tuned out by almost everybody. And as to like this representing employer stuff, again, I just don't think it's it's their business. Obviously, if you're saying shit to your coworkers, ideally, all this stuff would be handled through the union. I don't believe, I think workers can essentially discipline themselves when it comes to this stuff. 
in terms of people being a problem at work. But I think fundamentally, we have to say we have a First Amendment in this country, which I'm a big believer in. And I think we have to say this extends to workplace retaliation. You know, your workplace can't retaliate against you for the things you do off the clock because you have to be at work. And it's not fair for your ability to live a life where you can express yourself if you can lose your house uh, because you made some shit posts on Twitter. Right. And I, I think with that, I think, I, yeah, you definitely changed my mind on that a little bit for sure, which I'm happy about. There's, I think there's a fundamental problem too that, that people also like, like you said, like people have to make money, especially in this society. So the idea of canceling someone and then they have, I mean, you're a family man, you know, like there's other people involved. You might have a child that's not being taken care of because the way our society is, but now you don't have a job because of some shit you said online. So really it's kind of like this, this um, like depreciating ladder of, uh, of value where if you take away capital from some person, you're actually taking it away from more people involved. And, and there is a, uh, there is a, there's a moral, there's objectively moral reason to allow people to say things that some people would find objectionable, really. Mm -hmm. um, I do want to get into, I want to see if you, have you heard about the dark horse duo idea? No, I haven't. Okay, so it's this idea. Um, I get very into pseudo-intellectualism, so forgive me, but like, uh, like, I saw Brett Weinstein on, a, who's act, an actual intellectual guy, but he was talking about, um, he, he has this idea that two people run, like as vice president and president. And, and it's kind of how like America used to be, where the vice president would be, sorry, the other person running who lost the election would be the vice president. So one person, coin flip, runs uh, for president, one's vice president. It's an independent ticket. And after one center left, one center right, and they always make the decisions together if it's possible, right? And then after four years, they switch. And then they keep switching until one of them is ineligible. Do you, what do you think about that idea? I mean, I think it depends how you define center left, center right. Like, mm. what, I, what I think people should understand about this country, the United States, is certainly on the cultural sphere we've shifted a lot to the so-called left and you know in many cases that's been a good thing uh but on the economic front there has been a serious rightward shift since the world war ii new deal consensus you know the the neoliberal turn of the 80s so the politicians like the mainstream politicians people define as center left or center right to me a lot of them are economically extremely far right people like i think um, I think Bernie Sanders went a little farther in his 2020 campaign, but I think his 2016 campaign, to me, that is a, that is a center-left economic campaign. He was saying, you know, Medicare for All, or some variant of it, has, goes back to President Harry Truman. Um, you know, this is like not a radical Democrat, you know, socialist position. So, you know, yeah, like, I, I do think that... And I think the other element of it is there's the campaign finance system in this country, which is basically just legalized bribery. Mm. So I do think, like, I do think there are areas of agreement with the genuine people on the so-called populist right, you know, particularly with regards to anti-war, anti-empire stuff. Um, and, you know, some of them, I think, are uh, sincere about wanting to reindustrialize the United States because... To me, the primary problem is, and actually, I'll give you an example. Tucker Carlson doesn't articulate this pretty well. The primary, the primary problem is that you have to have, we were talking about earlier, these 68% of people without college degrees. You have to have some sort of middle-class job they can do so that they can provide for their, uh, their families. And, you know, my father had no college degree. He worked at an airline when it was, uh, he loaded baggage at an airline when the Teamsters unions were powerful. So he was able to buy a house, you know, like I can't even buy a house today. He was able to do that working a job with no college degree, just loading baggage. And fundamentally, like that's uh, the main issue. So in terms of like a left, right or center left, center right coalition, if they are speaking about these kinds of issues, just how do we make this country livable for regular people? And if they're let's say, not bought off by these campaign donations that buy off everyone else, that's certainly something I could support. 
Did you, um, when you were doing comedy, did you see cancel culture affecting it at all or not really? Well, there's been kind of a shift because, you know, it's so funny too because you get all these comedians who are just like saying fag all over Twitter in like 2012 and now they're talking about like, we need to to center women of color and uh, this is so disgusting. These jokes are violent rhetoric, you know, and then yeah. you Google their uh, or just search their Twitter history and you go back to 2013, 2014 and they're just saying all the same shit and, you know, like, Sure, people change what they find funny over time, they change their opinions over time, but all of it just seems so phony and so fundamentally fake to me. And I think, I think as comedians, I think there has to be some understanding that part of comedy is taking risk, you know? Like when you tell a joke, a lot of times it's not funny and you look stupid and sometimes you even look like an asshole. But the, there's no comedy without that risk of failure. So I, I think comedians have to be understanding with one another that sometimes we bomb. That's just what happens. I thought it was funny. I thought it was going to be funny when I said it, and it wasn't funny at all. Um, that doesn't mean you should lose your livelihood over it. And most of the time, it doesn't even mean you're a bad person. The, was your intention to just be funny and make people laugh? You know, you're probably your intention was not to win people over to David Duke and uh, uh, re-energize the Klux <laughs> Klan when you did that Chinese accent and right. you talked about the, the buildings in, in Manhattan and uh, how they were set up. So, you know, I just find, I think in recent years, definitely it has been a, uh, an issue in, in comedy, I think, but I think they were, they were later holdouts, but now that it's like so essential for a career in Hollywood, they've all converted because at the end of the day, this is what, what it is about for most of these people is just career advancement. Right. And a lot of them are, aren't even, in, you know, it'd be less phony if they admitted it. Like, I'll admit it. I do this show because I'm trying to get people to get educated and stuff. But I've dropped a few N-bombs on social media. I'm not proud of it. Whatever. It didn't go over well. I'm not going to do it again. Whatever. I mean, and, um, and in terms of comedy, like, you're right. Like, you find out the intent is to be funny. And then you find out, like, if something bombs because it's too over the top, you just won't say it again, probably, because it's not a good joke. And sometimes things that are too over the top are really funny, you know, like, Jim Norton can do that type of shit where you can just say like wild stuff and it'd be hilarious. Um, I used to do stand up, so I, I full disclosure. And right. I, I told a joke in front of a. Um, <laughs> have you ever been to the Stanhope House? It's shit. It's like the worst place ever. Uh, no, I haven't. No, it's like, it's like where it's like they have some big acts. And uh, I, I knew the booker, so like I got on the show and um, I made this joke that just wasn't funny. It was why, why did the. Why did the chicken cross to the... First of all, it wasn't funny because it's not a good fucking joke because I sucked. It was why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side, but he couldn't because he was Muslim. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, uh, my friend was in the crowd and all his, his friends were uh, Muslim. And then, like, afterwards, I was like, oh, shit, I feel really bad. And no one laughed, so I feel doubly like shit. So you figure that right. kind of stuff out. Like, what's funny, what you shouldn't say. And also, like, sometimes it's both. Sometimes it's just not funny and it's also something you probably shouldn't say. Yeah, I mean, usually the punishment for telling a bad or offensive joke is you feel like a dumbass and you feel like everybody hates you because nobody laughed at you. Right. I mean, like, you know, I love stand-up, but I think, like, that's a feeling very few people get is just bombing your ass off in front of a room full of people who paid money for 10 or 20 minutes, uh, 45 minutes, you know, like people just eat their ass and then you just feel like a bad person who should kill yourself for the rest of the day. And then you go to sleep and you wake up and it's a little better and you learn a lesson from that. And I think that's enough punishment for, for telling a bad joke. And I, I think the other thing is like, like you were saying, open mics or all these stuff, part of becoming a funny stand-up comedian is, or part of any skill is sucking at it for a while. And so it is kind of an unfortunate thing where like all this, um, let's say looking through past podcasts and looking through like old stand-up tapes and all that stuff, just digging up things people said five or even 10 years ago. Part of that is like the natural learning process. And part of it is also destroying people for stuff that they wouldn't think was good enough to put out there. I mean, you know, if it's, 
Like I, I disagree with it, but it's one thing to say, Hey, this is what they put out. They put their name on this. This is the best shit, but it's an entirely other thing to just go like, well, they were clearly learning something when they were doing this. And, uh, you went back and destroyed them for something they did a decade ago. Exactly. Right. Like you have to look at who the person is now through their actions mostly. And I think you'll see that most time people aren't the same person they were like 10 years ago. Like remember how popular was that gay marriage was like not a cool thing. Like when we were kids, you know what I'm saying? Like, and now everyone's like, I can't believe that that was illegal. Like, like 10 years ago, like what the fuck, why was that even illegal? That makes no sense. So it really is. We're not giving people room to grow by doing that. And you can't, you know, it's a, uh, it's a double-edged sword. Like people want to advance society, but they also want to go back uh, on these old things that people did. And it's like, you're cutting yourself either way. And and you're, you're not even, you're not even letting individuals grow. How can the society grow? No, absolutely. Um, do you think people get really uh, like too caught up in what other people think and they don't think for themselves enough? Yeah, I do. I think, I mean, that's the thing is like it, people occasionally message me to say something to the effect of like, thanks for being contrarian or speaking out or, you know, it must take bravery to do whatever. And I appreciate that. And I think it is great. Like, first of all, I don't think it takes bravery for me to do what I do. I think it's a person like the aforementioned Angela Nagel is a person who's paid a much more serious price than, than I ever have. Um, But I, I do think that's gratifying where I think there's an isolation and there's a self censorship that I think is, is very dangerous in this society right now because people think they see all this craziness around them and they don't want to be the next target of the mob. And I think speaking out at the risk of unpopularity, if you believe something is your duty, you know, or uh, to, to cite another prominent intellectual, as Jordan Peterson says, just uh, tell the truth or stop telling lies. And then you advance to a a point where you're capable of telling the truth. Like stop telling lies, I think is a very good first step advice. And I think a lot of people do tell lies because everybody wants to be liked. They want to be accepted. They want to, you know, have a peer group. But I think the reality is you are going to destroy yourself mentally if you start telling lies or betraying the things you believe in just to fit in and belong. And the other thing is I would tell people is there are, no matter what you believe, there is a community out there who will love you for that. And it's okay to express yourself and be yourself. Um, You know, even if you're a Nazi, I hope you will stop being a Nazi, but uh, you know, I don't want to put a bullet in your head. I, uh, I would like to speak to you and hopefully convince you to not be a Nazi. Right. Like, uh, I always refer to people to um, Daryl Davis. He was that black musician who would talk to KKK members and convert them to not be KKK members. That's like, that's what we do is we just got to like talk more and have, um, have some compassion and uh, really, and to quote Jordan Peterson again, you know, get our own lives in order before we judge the world. Really? Right. Right. Like we we're such messes and this is kind of goes back to white fragility where I think, you know, we're messes internally that we like to project our own faults into everybody else. And maybe that's actually a great way to learn is to understand our own faults and understand why they're happening. And then we can maybe talk to someone who's a Nazi and be like, Hey, cause I do that sometimes too. I used to be in the alt right. So like, it's, it's and like, I've been in some cults, dude. I've been in some shit brother. All right. <laughs> so I can be like, Hey, like I know what it's like to be in one of these things. And I think you're kind of falling into that trap. So I want you to be careful. I want you to take some precautious steps here. And I don't want you to, to go off off the deep end and just take a step back and breathe and realize that, you know, maybe we are all going to be okay. I don't know, Sean, I'm rambling. I'm a fucking rambler. I sometimes I just go, I, I go off too, on tangents too much, man. I'm just curious, like, so what drew you to the alt-right initially when you were in there? Just like a sense of isolation from society or? Uh, this is before I else? fucked, dude. I was an incel, brother. Yes, right. But- <laughs> so that's the thing. A lot of it is that, yeah. For real. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a problem. I'm not saying it's women's fault or anything. Like, I'm, no. but, uh, people, you know, young men are not having sex. I mean, that's going to just drive them to, ha- you know, it is a biological need really. And it's going to drive them to go off the deep end like it did with me. 
And then, you, you know, you start, I think what happens is you start asking questions about who you are, why you are the way you are. And then you find these online community, communities and then you find this confirmation bias from people like Milo Yiannopoulos or whatever. And it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And I've heard this similar story from others where like, the, you know, it's like one step, you know, further and one step further. And you listen to different people until you're all the way, you know, it's too far and you're on 4chan or 8chan or whatever. And right. then uh, I stopped doing that because I, I had a class. Um, I took a political theory class and I was like, oh, I was wrong about so much stuff. I wonder what else I'm wrong about. And then I just, I just started practicing being wrong, really. And that's what helped me be a better person. And yeah, I had sex and I was an incel. So there you go. Well, yeah, I think the incels are actually a good example of like when this kind of like tolerance and understanding is, uh, is justified. Like I made this point on Twitter where like I think a thing with comedy that where it runs into this kind of, let's say, cultural Maoist attempt to impose a political agenda on it and use it to brainwash people and teach them all the progressive stuff about how we all love each other and kumbaya and this will fix the population. Where it runs into a problem is the fundamental reality of comedy is bullying people is funny and, you know, making fun of people and punching down and all this stuff. Like, people laugh at that. They can't help it. It doesn't make them bad people. Um, so you get this kind of like insane framework for understanding comedy about punching up and punching down, which has to invent a reason to make fun of um, virgins, men who can't get laid, uh, by saying, oh, they're incels, they're bad people, they hate women, so it's okay to like say, oh, you're ugly, or oh, you can't get laid, or oh, you only believe that because you can't get laid, and all this stuff. And, um, you know, I think comedy is comedy, but I think uh people shouldn't delude themselves into thinking there's any sort of punch up punch down framework and i think in terms of uh in comedy and i think in terms of a political project i think socially isolated young men have to be understood and treated with compassion and and understanding because it is difficult um you know you get rejected all the time you feel like a piece of shit the men kill themselves disproportionately uh and I think, you know, society has to treat these people with, with love and compassion and understanding and try to try to bring them back. And again, the reality is what we are seeing with the incel and, you know, the neat phenomenon and all this is the failure of material society. So we can try our best at the interpersonal level to meet everyone we meet everyone with understanding, but we have to fix these problems at the material level because they're going to blow up in our face if not. Again, these these incels or, or whatever else in 40 years ago or 50 years ago they would just get a high school degree and then they would be able to like have a great job at uh, you know the gm plant but that's gone now so you know they get a college degree and then they're in debt and then they you know can't even make that much or they get a high school degree and they're working at a convenience store and they just feel socially isolated and they're broke and you know, so these are all ultimately material failings and we have to understand them as failings of the society as a whole rather than as individuals. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you made me think there's a lot of parallels between, I mean, I brought up cults before, like new religious movements always start in history when there's some kind of civil, social, economic unrest. Uh, you saw it like, you know, when America was being formed in like upper New York area, uh, Christianity was specifically, uh, like not when it started, but it was specifically used to, for the Roman Empire to seem charitable. Uh, these, uh, Taoism was a response to hardcore Confucianism because people wanted to be free. And that's, I think, kind of what inceldom, and like, I wasn't on like these forums or anything. I just thought like I was never going to get laid and I was mad at women for it. Like, I'm not as extreme as other people were, but that's where a lot of these new religious movements or cults as they're called as well they, where they come from because you know there are a lot of these systematic problems and people don't really know where to look and religion's kind of on the down uh, da, uh, decline so people are like well what do i where do i turn to i'm looking for answers and they find their answers in really malignant places like like insulatum forums and like you know on the, and uh, the alt-right and then the other side you have you know, people that are finding it in like wokeness or cancel culture or whatever, because they really, 
I think people want to create devils because in everyone's own mind, they're already almost an angel because people don't want to admit they're wrong anyway. So we look for these devils that we can just shame and attack. And, and really, I think we're all failing to realize the devil is actually in ourselves. Yeah, well, I think, you know, a good example of this is with all this, like, uh, n refusal to wear masks with COVID-19. Like, I think you can really attribute a lot of paranoia or conspiracy theory and fringe politics in American society, I think, is almost entirely attributable to this material stuff. So uh, take the people who thinks, you know, the masks is a George Soros conspiracy and uh, Soros wants to put a chip in your arm. And once you put on the mask, that means uh, that's your ticket onto the train to the new Auschwitz. That's how they're going to identify you. You know, people get these ideas in their head and it's like, and so then you'll see the reaction where somebody doesn't wear a mask and they go into a grocery store and then they post on Facebook, oh, I'm coughing a lot, and then they die of COVID the next day. And you'll see people on the internet like make fun of them, like, ha ha, what an idiot. But it's actually very tragic. And it's, it's in, in many ways understandable where, you know, what did mainstream media tell the American people for the last 40 years? Well, they told them there were going to be WMDs in Iraq and Saddam was about to nuke us. That turned out to be bullshit. They told them we could sign a permanent normalized trade relationship with China in 2000 and that would be fine. That would be a win-win. Free trade is a win-win. Uh, and then from 2000 to 2007, this is before the recession, 20% of all U.S. manufacturing jobs disappear right after PNTR is signed. It destroys the entire ability for people to make a middle-class living without a college degree. And you can go down the list, but again and again and again, mainstream media has completely failed people, has completely lied to people or been taken in. And so... It's not surprising that people turn on the news now and they think they're lying to us again. They've been lying to us for the last 40 years. And in terms of, you know, thinking that George Soros is the puppet master and they're all pedophiles and, you know, Trump is about to execute everybody at Guantanamo Bay, uh, some of this stuff may not necessarily be true, but it's understandable where people don't, not everybody understands all the big systems, and I'm not even saying I understand all the big systems, but they understand their lives are bad, or, you know, their kid overdosed on heroin or fentanyl. That's another one you can blame on the mainstream media, uh, covering for these fucking killers, uh, the opiate drug makers. Um, not everybody understands these bigger systems, but they understand their lives are bad. So they look for something or someone to blame. And when the media lies to them for 40 years, they stop trusting the media. They start trusting the guy on Facebook, you know, like mm. you know the guy on Facebook, you know, I check his page every day. He hasn't lied to me before. I trust him more than NBC news. They've lied to me. So all this kind of paranoia and fringe and conspiracy theory, it all stems from the material conditions over the last 40 years. And we have to fix it by fixing the material conditions rather than trying to attack individuals individuals should whenever be possible whenever possible be met with understanding and sympathy and attempts to uh lead them back to the right path very yeah very very well said uh i'm just thinking of have you ever read the giver uh i read it in elementary school i barely remember any of it but i did read it so the, like the main character everything's in black and white and you don't know this for a while and it's like a dystopian society and you know you find that out later but Eventually, the main character, he sees color and like out of an apple and you think everything's perfect. Like Schindler's List. Is that, I never saw Schindler's List. It's a good movie. I got to check it out. I feel, I feel lame now. But then he sees that people are, you know, the people that are dying, they're getting, or like, no one dies. They get sent off to some nice place. They're getting killed. They're getting injected mm -hmm. and shipped off into this graveyard. And I really do feel like exactly what you're saying, like, that, that's what's happening with Americans, you know, when we're kids, especially how our parents were raised, we're taught, oh, this is the greatest country on earth. You can do whatever you want. You can be president. And then you get older and you get older and you get fucked and you get fucked and you get fucked. And it's just like, oh, we're actually in a dystopia. These books that I've been reading, they're written because this is a thing that actually happens. It's not, you know, we, we are, we're in the matrix, whatever way you want to interpret that. And, you know, we really, we, we just have to sail through these, these treacherous seas, man. It's, uh, 
it's getting rough out there for real. We, we're waking up. We're red pulling. Not to use that term, but like that's why people turn the QAnon in Pizzagate. And like you said, everyone's a pedophile in Hollywood. No, I'm happy to drop red pills. That's what I do on Twitter all day. Drop red pills about how the CIA created Robin D'Angelo. Follow the white rabbit and all that. Any, oh, uh, sorry. Oh, I would just say like regarding this current society, I think the, the best term I've heard for understanding it is uh, Chris Hayes is a journalist. He quotes a political scientist I'm spacing on the name of who coined the term um, inverted totalitarianism, which, um, I think is interesting because like living in America or Europe uh, to a lesser extent in Europe, but you do have basic rights like free speech and uh, free assembly and such. And, you know, it's not China. You're not going to be put in a labor camp for criticizing the government on Twitter, but it's inverted totalitarianism because nothing you do, whether it's, you know, voting or having a peaceful protest or whatever else, nothing you really do is allowed to challenge corporate power. So you have this major merger of the largest corporations, the largest multinational corporations and the federal government, which has basically become an arm of the largest corporations. And, you know, there's ostensible political debates about Goya beans and all those other important issues uh, that Americans talk about on the table, uh, at the kitchen table, but nothing inside the political consensus is allowed to challenge corporate power. And, you know, it remains to see, uh, be seen if we will see that overcome in our lifetime. But you do kind of live under a slightly softer form of totalitarianism where you cannot challenge corporate power. Right. I, I see that a lot. You know, like uh, the media wants to say, like, why don't you protest peacefully? I have only seen change in my life like like this, where people are actually, where the government's actually doing police reform because of the riots. And not that I think the riots are a good thing, but that's why things are changing. I, I think legitimately, that's that's the main reason everyone's like, okay, 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 you're, you're attacking our, our money and now we have to do something. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, rioting is definitely more effective, but I think the problem is this is still being stage managed where you know, there's proposals to cut police budgets, and that's fine. But the question is, are you going to like cut a billion dollars out of the police budget and then just pocket it? Or are you going to take that billion dollars and say, we're reinvesting this in the community? And that's the big argument, you know, because like, if you just take a billion out of the police budget, and pocket it, you're just going to see more crime, more private security for the rich people. But I think there's an argument uh, that, convince, that convinces me which is that a lot of the money spent on policing and incarceration should instead be spent on economic revitalization and putting money into distressed communities. So, but we're going to see if it happens that way, like in New York, it, at least it seems like they're just going to cut the NYPD and then just save the money and say, Hey, we're in a, we're in a depression. We have to trim our, trim our budget. And I think if you do that, well, that's the politics of austerity and things only get worse from there. Are there any psyops or uh, conspiracy theories going around right now you want people to know about? Well, I've really gone on the, off the deep end on the JFK conspiracy. Like, I mean, you know, so on our podcast, we did some stuff about Epstein um, and I went too crazy on that for a while. But now I'm like, I'm embracing the fact that I'm over 30. I'm a 31 year old boomer. So I thought I'm going to get into JFK I'm going to really go fucking nuts about uh, how the CIA assassinated President Kennedy and stopped him from uh, ending the Cold War. Um, but I'm reading this book, um, JFK and the Unspeakable, which I do really recommend to people. I think it'll um, uh, shock you in terms of a lot of the evidence presented. I uh, Some of it may overstate the case, but I think just it presents so much evidence that at least some of it you just go like, there is no fucking way Oswald was not on a government payroll, you know, like, and there's no fucking way there was not at least some sort of cover up here in terms of how this assassination of President Kennedy went down. And it sure looks like the guy was talking to Fidel Castro and talking to Nikita Khrushchev and, uh, you know, talking to the president of um, Indonesia and trying to make peace with all these trying to get out of Vietnam, trying to make peace. And it sure looks like the guy got clipped by the national security establishment over that. And we've been in, you know, 
these kinds of forever wars ever since, 20 years in Afghanistan. So, I mean, I guess what I would say in terms of PSYOPs is uh, look at how many billions of dollars people are extracting from the war from the war in Afghanistan and they already got from the war in Iraq and just how that all ties into the intelligence agencies and these private corporations that they make a shitload of money when we put troops somewhere. Right, exactly. And if, you know, besides uh, JFK and the Unspeakable, that's the name of the book. Mm -hmm. Inside that book, if you've ever read War is a Racket, it's only like an hour read. It really explains, it really explains, and you can find the audiobook for free, everybody, on, on YouTube why our government does what they do and how long they've been doing this and how much money there is to be made from not just uh not just war but you see it now like billionaires are making more money while everyone else is suffering that's that's just the sad truth of the society that we live in um last question and then like you know we'll sign off we'll do the plug all that is charles manson was he a cia operative Oh, so like, yeah, I've, I haven't read Chaos, the book about that, but I've seen the guy interviewed on uh, Chapo Trap House and Joe Rogan. And I mean, it seems pretty convincing that uh, at least he was part of a CIA experiment program, which we actually did on our Patreon, on our podcast, Grub Stakers. We did an episode about um, the CIA torture program and how it dates back to mind control or like the idea of mind control in the fifties with these Korean war prisoners of war and the CIA experimented with, uh, public taxpayer money on a lot of different stuff, but just like dosing people with LSD and seeing if they could get them to commit crimes and then forget stuff. And, you know, doctors linked to that were clearly dosing Charles Manson and, uh, a bunch of his, arrests kind of disappeared and he uh he was allowed to just keep roaming around after breaking parole and it sure seems like they were experimenting on him at the minimum and seeing if they could you know produce violent tendencies or get him to do things uh so yeah absolutely i buy that i don't you you don't never know how deep it goes but just the evidence of a cover-up is is sinister enough you know yeah absolutely Uh, well um, Sean, you've been such a phenomenal guest. Uh, where can people find you? Where can people listen to your podcast? What's your social media? Yeah, uh, you can find me at uh, whichever Twitter thread people are getting most mad at that day of the week. I'm probably the author of that one. Um, no, I, uh, the podcast is Grub Stakers. Uh, like I said, we profile uh, two billionaires every week, one on SoundCloud, one on our Patreon. Um, check it out. I hope you like it. We did an episode with uh, Matt Crispin and Nick Mullen about Jeffrey Epstein. That's very popular. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Sean McCarthy com C O M and also find me online, Sean P McCarthy.com. And thank you for having me. It's been good to, to, to ramble about the deep state forces that uh, George Soros is controlling. I, uh, you know, and I love to hear about it and, I usually ask people to sign off with a book or a quote. Uh, you can add another book if you want. Uh, oh, I'll just say Smedley Butler to go back to his book. You mentioned War is a Racket. Interesting thing about him is he was originally enlisted to be part of this plot to overthrow Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the business plot, you know, this coup against the president uh, who was going to do social democratic New Deal reforms, which is why a lot of people were worried. And I think it is a possibility that if Bernie got too close, they would have assassinated him. But I guess the interesting thing about that is Franklin Roosevelt actually found out about the business plot, he defeated it, and then he kind of quietly covered it up. So it's, I guess, an interesting thing about power is uh, the people who really understand and exercise it moves in, move in ways uh, we'll never fully understand. And uh, they at least in the U.S. government, have to cooperate with some factions that we might never, in our little peon minds, be able to grasp the true nature of. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you again for joining. I am going to cut the recording, so signing off. Bye. All right. Bye. Thank you.